You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm exactly the same. What a coincidence. I'm lying, though. I'm not okay. I was going to say I'm, I'm exaggerating. Yeah, but false, false stoicism here. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on. And um, I'm, as I said offline, I'm very excited about the, the, uh, the release of Borat 2 tomorrow night. This is. Well, now, by the time this airs, this, that will already be out there, along with all of its, any, any possible ramifications it may have, uh, including implications for the election. I'm trying to think when this will run. I think this is going to run after the election. The, the, um, because it may have some, we needn't dwell on that, but, 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 uh, Borat may, may, uh, as people will know, but then they see this may, may, in a very oblique way, just because there's a, there's a, a, a person who enters into it who currently is, uh, trying to make sure that Joe Biden doesn't win the election and the Borat movie casts aspersions of a sort on the, this per- said person. We needn't. So I've heard, yeah. Let's move to loftier things. Um, the, yes. The- I was going to mention also, uh, you know, I have a new feature. I'm trying to upgrade my game here, but I have a sound buffer. You see Whoa. it? I see it. It looks like, so it looks for people who aren't uh, watching, but are only listening. It's a thing. How would you describe that? It reminds, it's the shape of a backstop on a softball field. In which case we would say that you're at home plate facing the backstop, except that it's, it's much kind of closer to you and immediately surrounding you. And it goes almost as high as your shoulders, but not quite. And you're telling me that actually will absorb a fair an, a sound in an important way. Allegedly. That's what it's, that's what it said was said to do. But, um, this is the extra large model. And, um, in terms of, uh, sophomore salacious jokes, there was a review on Amazon by um, a one Jeffrey Tubin, and apparently this is the thing that <laughs> Man, we're really we're, we're, we're starting really, low. We're, yeah, no. uh, but this is it's it is it, it seems to it, it's sort of a fortress that I can hide behind. Wait, it. there was a review by the Jeffrey Tubin on the no, site. No, 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 a no, Jeffrey Tubin. No, no, no. I'm referring to to the Jeffrey Tubin and and the alleged Zoom call where uh, he was caught on. Online. It would be, it would be, uh, yeah. So from the, um, to meet the not very high bar of elevating the conversation, um, we are going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about something called the logos. Um, the, uh, which I think is a very important concept. Maybe we should, um, back up and frame this conversation in a slightly larger context. Um, you had suggested very generously at some point that we should have a few conversations where we explore my worldview. Yes. And I want to emphasize this was your idea. This was not my idea. And uh, false humility demanded that I protest briefly. Sure. You can, you can, you can make those utterances, but if we back up a bit and, and, and this may be uh, an illustration of, an aspect of the logos eventually. But, uh, in our conversations, you were articulating to me a sort of a, a sense of wanting to get your message out in a more, in a broader, um, broader way and, 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 and speak to issues of, of deep importance that, that are of value to you and, and, and wanting to sort of think creatively on how to get that, that message across more. This is true. I mean, there's the, yeah, and there's the related fact that I, I see myself as having a coherent worldview. I'm not, I'm not sure it's evident to anyone else that I do, even among the small people who might ask themselves, the small number of people who might ask themselves the question of whether I have a coherent, what I mean is I've written in like five books. I think they add up to something, even though in some ways they seem to be about different things. And, and the logos actually shows up in two of them, by the way. There's yeah. a whole chapter on it in The Evolution of God. And it is the um, on the last page of Non-Zero, which was the book before The Evolution of God, there's a quote um, 
Well, from Philo of Alexandria, and I'm looking at it, maybe I don't use the word logos, but he is describing uh, the logos in this quote, which I, which I assume we'll have occasion to read after this. And, and um, I mean, during this conversation. And um, meanwhile, the logos uh, in between my, my uh, deploying it in, in non-zero in the evolution of God and now, Jordan Peterson bursts on the scene and he's, he's apparently been writing about the logos for some time and I think helped popularize the word, uh, uh, among a lot of people. I have paid, I have not read anything he said about it or heard anything he said about it. You have delved a little into, into some of his lectures where he does deploy the term. So our knowledge is maybe complementary here. I, 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 I want to talk about the ancient, uh, you know, the, the use of the term in ancient and uh, philosophy and theology and my own take on modern uh, applications of it. And then maybe you can fill us in a little on what Jordan Peterson seems to mean by the term. Does that seem? Yeah, I can try my best. And maybe before we dive straight into the logos, we zoom back for a sec and and try to articulate or have maybe you try to articulate uh, the Dharma of Bob in a certain sense of like the, the, when I hear the term the Dharma, it, it I, I borrow from uh, the Buddhist conception, uh, which is sort of a the way things are, but it's also a way to live in accordance with the way things are to mitigate suffering, um, unnecessary suffering, uh, in a way. And um, I feel like there's there's distinct features of of your worldview that uh, hold that near and dear. Um. Yeah. The. Uh... First of all, again, false humility demands that I note that you thought of the term Dharma of Bob as being the overarching uh, way to describe the overarching theme of these several conversations. But um, I like it. I got to say I am Bob and I like it. Um, I also want to say, you know, I was listening. So last night to brush up, (laughs) I listened to my chapter on the logos and the evolution of God, which I haven't read in, oh, 11 years. Uh, and I probably, and I read in galleys before the book was published. Um, and I actually make an explicit comparison between the logos and exactly what you just said about the Dharma. I, I bring the Dharma in and I say, so the logos in a way like the Eastern, you know, concept of, of the Dharma is both the truth about the way things are and the truth about the way you should live in accordance with the way things are. It is both an objective truth and a source of guidance. So, and, and it, it would seem also a, a, uh, a f- uh, kind of a formulaic injunction for how to realize that. Uh, right. now you're saying this is your, your sense of Peterson's take on the logos or you're describing the Dharma now, the Dharma, more the Dharma, but, okay. but, but I think well, we, I, I want to, I would love to get into that, that, that parallel or the, the overlap between logos and Dharma. I think, I think um, my sense of it, and it's very rudimentary, but my sense is that uh, the the logos became absorbed. Not it was not a cross fertilization necessarily, but in the Dharma, the concept of logos is somewhat implicit, uh-huh. and and um, and so the, I see I see some some, yeah. some broad parallels between the two. Now, now a final thing I would say to set up the term. I'd say two things to set up the, the discussion is um, I think one reason I, I think that the, the concept is important today for people who would like to have, you know, a body of ideas that are scientifically respectable can seem more or less compatible with scientific worldview. And yet I would say not just spiritually rewarding, but even, um, having a theological dimension. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in a way, this was, I think, part of the original, well, uh, this was a very early ancient deployment of the term because uh, the, the, the philosopher and kind of theologian that, that I've talked about using it in ancient days, um, Philo of Alexandria, who lived around the time of uh, Jesus, uh, he, he was, he was, uh, and he was Jewish, but he was living in a cosmopolitan kind of Greek milieu. So he's very influenced by Greek philosophy, but he was, uh, 
he was uh, devout in his devotion to the Jewish faith. And he wanted to kind of reconcile these two. So he took a, a term that can be rendered uh, the logos in, you know, a kind of abstract way and in a way that, that sounds uh, fine so far as sciences goes. And, and, and he wanted to be among the people who was uh, making this kind of fusion between philosophy and theology. He was not alone. Um, the, uh, the book of John in the New Testament is famously rendered as in the beginning was the word, the word was, uh, with God and the word was God. That the actual Greek term is translated, uh, as word is logos. So what that really says is in the beginning was the logos, uh, and the logos was God and was with God, was kind of in God in some sense and was God. Um, and, and so that's probably, uh, my final tease is I think, uh, if you're among those who is think, asking whether we're living in a simulation, the logos can also be applied to you. And we'll, we'll maybe get back to that, if not in this conversation, then, then, then later. And is that because you think logos is, is in some sense the, the divine genetic code of, of evolution? Um, well, the term I use in the evolution of God is the divine algorithm. And, and I use, uh, it, just in trying to, you know, and this is before everybody was talking about a simulation, um, it was after the movie The Matrix I wrote this, but before all you know, people, philosophers and Elon Musk were, you know, going on and on about it. Um, but just for purposes of trying to make clear the idea of the logos, I use the analogy of a video game. And video game having a creator who on the one hand is outside of the system, but on the other hand, who is manifest within it in in the sense that uh, the creator, uh, you know, generated the principles that govern the system and guide the characters. So you, you see this, this concept as sort of the, the linking concept between a maybe pre-rational, uh, religious, mythical worldview and a more rational scientific, uh, um, understanding. I, I, I wouldn't. Is that fair? Uh, I mean, I think, well, you could say, I mean, in general, Philo of Alexandria's mission was to make, uh, part of his mission was to make the Hebrew Bible, uh, you know, what Christians call the Old Testament, more or less, um, uh, compatible with a, a more, in his day, modern philosophical sensibility. And so he did a lot of, like, interpreting it allegorically, you know, things that might seem like, uh, crazy, you know, implausible miracles to somebody of a secular orientation. He would say, well, that's an allegory. He would go through the Bible and do that. So he was very much about taking what some people would consider old fashioned theological concepts and, and rendering and, and, and scriptures and rendering them in a, in a more, you might say, respectable to a modern sensibility way. And, and one of those concepts was an anthropomorphic God. The Logos is a way of thinking about God that, notwithstanding my previous analogy to a video game designer, is less, is not so anthropomorphic and, uh, is not so hands-on interventionist. Right. Uh, and, um, so in that sense, uh, yes, but, but I would, I would, uh, I would also say, I mean, it's it, but it's not just. I don't. It's not just a way of exp- dispensing with the theology. It's a way. Well, maybe that maybe a term. Maybe we should you know talk about not just theology but teleology. The idea that there is a higher purpose. It, 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 the logos helps. I think it play, can play a big role in the conversation about how that could be that a. And this is a firm belief of mine. A. You can a a person of impeccable scientific credentials with a completely scientific worldview absolutely can believe that there is a larger purpose unfolding on Earth in the universe. Whatever I believe, there's actually reason to think that, but but that's more um, arguable. What I believe 
is really not arguable, <laughs> I hate to say it, but uh, I, I think people who believe that you can't have a completely scientific world, you, even a scientific materialist worldview, if you want, and still believe that some larger purpose uh, helps explain why things have the shape they have and the, and the law, scientific laws have the form they have. People who think that, I forget where I was in that sentence, but anyway, people who think that those two things are incompatible, teleology and scientific worldview, I think are just flat out demonstrably wrong. Sorry, hate to sound obnoxious, but uh, I, I, I just think. And teleology, it, 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 not just purpose, but it, doesn't it convey a sense of directionality? In purpose typically uh, does. Uh, I mean, yeah, because if you take, uh, you know, teleology refers to kind of, it entails kind of goal orientation. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I mean, you even take a, 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 a man-made system uh, that has a goal orientation, like a thermostat, uh, or, you know, anything with a feedback system, even a toilet, right? If the water gets too low, the feedback, that's feedback, and the system gets the water up to a certain level, the thermostat gets the temperature back up to a certain level. So there's movement toward something that is thought of as a goal. Um, and and I, I would say it, certainly the question of directionality in biological evolution and human cultural evolution uh, plays, plays a big role in arguments about whether there's a purpose. And again, those are arguable. Whether there is a purpose, I want to emphasize. I'm not, I'm not saying I have the revealed truth about that. I just think that in principle, uh, you can be, have a thoroughly scientific worldview and believe there is a larger purpose. And, and so that, I just think people who disagree are just, I'm sorry again, but confused. So you have a scientific worldview and you perceive a purpose. And, uh, I think that's part of the, your view is to, to explain or to articulate then what, what is the directionality of that purpose? And I know you've written about this, but just to, to, to name it as, as a setup for the discussion of, of the logos. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at the same time, my argument that there is as an empirical matter, directionality observable uh i invoke in the argument that there is purpose but it's i don't i don't i don't i don't claim that that's it, that's a killer argument i don't claim i prove purpose or anything like that you're just saying there's evidence that suggests there's, i think there's evidence more suggestive of it than a lot of people appreciate and and it doesn't necessarily i mean uh is your purpose uh, predicated on kind of a, a creator God, or is it sort of built into the, 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 the mechanism of the universe? Um, well, it, on that point, I guess you could say I'm agnostic. And it's important to understand that the existence of a goal-oriented system needn't necessarily imply a hands-on creator. And a good example um so on the one hand, a thermostat does have a, a creator. On the other hand, the maker of the thermostat, so organisms, they have goal orientation, right? It's like you, you look at, you observe an animal. If you were just came from another planet and were some kind of disembodied intelligence that had never seen an animal and you just observed them, you'd say, well, they, they, it seems like one of their goals is to eat stuff. And, and, and if you observe them generation after generation, you might say, and you know, those goals like eating stuff and, uh, and defending themselves, those actually seem subordinate to a, a kind of larger goal of, of reproducing, of like getting this genetic material in the next generation. And I think, you know, a lot of biologists would say, yeah, that's a reasonable way to speak. They, animals have goals, but they were not imbued by an intelligent designer or, you know, like, by a human, you know, by, by, by a hands-on created, they were created by a process, natural selection, which over time generates organisms that themselves have goal orientation. So if I step back and assert that the larger system we're seeing unfold on this planet, biological evolution, cultural evolution, 
may have a larger purpose in the sense maybe heading towards something that you could say is in some sense, quote, by design. Um, just as you can say an animal eats, quote, by design, if you view natural selection kind of metaphorically as, as a designer, um, I am not saying that the designer of the, of the whole evolutionary system, even if it turns out it does have a goal, the whole system, that doesn't mean the designer is some kind of hands-on, intelligent, like God or anything. And, and in fact, there are specific scenarios where a process analogous to natural selection operating at the cosmic level, operating among universes even, could explain how you get goal orientation in an evolutionary process within one of the universes. I won't, I will not get into that now, but I'll just say that I was, I'm, I, you know, I, I was not, uh, the first to, um, well, it's a little, anyway, there, there are theories out there about what's called cosmological natural selection. Hmm. Lee Smolin is associated with one. Uh, he's a prominent and important physicist. And there's a, there's a variant of his theory that could explain this that he doesn't himself dwell on, but a couple of other people have gotten into that could explain how an evolutionary system could have goal orientation that's imbued uh, through a process of cosmological natural selection. Uh, we should, we should get back to the logos. Before. Yeah, I was going to say, so, so in discussing the logos, um, first thing I want to mention, this is a caveat is that, you know, I, as I mentioned offline, I was raised by agnostics, uh, Religion was never a discussion in the house. I grew up in a town that was deeply Catholic, and uh, I just felt like a, a you know an ostracized uh, outcast in that in that community. Um, but it wasn't until I got to college that I read the Bible in a, in a contemporary civilizations class, and um, you know I, I remember more or less dozing through the discussion of logos. It seemed really inscrutable and unintelligible to you me. You do remember the word though. Oh, I do remember the word. I remember like a month of discussion around it, I think. And, and me, and I was probably at that point an obnoxious card carrying atheist and just sort of prematurely dismissive of the whole thing. Um, and one of the reasons why I, I was, I mentioned Peterson to you is that, you know, in listening to him, I, I, he's making it, uh, in a way accessible and, 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 um, and relevant to, to just, daily living and, and, and being, making sense of the world in a way that doesn't seem uh, like it, it jettisons rationality at all. Um, so can, first, can like, you, yeah. We're, uh, if you were going to ask another question, I'd like to interrupt and ask you a question about Peterson, but if you sure. weren't going to ask another question, go ahead and say something. Well, I, I was just going to say like, I wanted to maybe begin asking you what the general conception of a logos of the logos is, and then how does it play within how you see this sort of uh, biological so, uh, cultural development of, of history. Okay. Uh, then I would like to interrupt and just ask you does, and I know you're not a, a, a Peterson scholar, but you've listened to a couple of those religion lectures where he deploys the term logos. Does what he says, about it sound compatible with what I've sound uh, said so far, or is he emphasizing a different aspect of it? Right. Any, and any, any misinterpreta misinterpretations of Peterson are entirely my own, but um, from what I can gather, it does sound compatible. I mean, it, it, it sounds like there's an, the, the role that the logos plays is that it's part of the engine of, of uh, evolution and the, 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 evolving of the good he doesn't use that term mm -hmm. but it, it sort of it, it places the development of society and, and humanity in a trajectory towards approaching transcendent good is the way i i hear what he's talking about right uh, i yeah i i think i'd uh i'd go along with um yeah and, beca and because of that because of its sort of the coding of it, it, in terms of its divine direction, it, it, it's imbued with this sacred, sacrosanct uh, dimension or quality. You know, you mentioned um, growing up among Catholics, and, and so this just reminds me that it's not, 
you know, the, the Pierre Théard de Chardin, this kind of very interesting Catholic theologian and philosopher, also paleontologist, scientist, who was for a while kind of ostracized by the Catholic Church. Um, his work is not irrelevant I, I he must have used the word he must have used, drawn on the concept somewhere but i'm not aware of that what i'm aware of is that he 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 very much emphasized the idea that biological evolution and cultural and technological evolution were drawing us to this kind of point and he is also i believe the one who famously said or one of the ones who famously said uh, god is less in the alpha than in the omega so in other words, th- there is a view where it's almost like the divine is taking shape, like the seed of the divine is planted and the divine itself is evolving. That, that, that's uh, uh, not necessarily part of the idea of the logos is classically conceived, but it's, it's, it seems to be not incompatible with some. Uh, some and that, ev- that evolving process is in itself a creative expression. To the, the, the element of creativity yeah. to this it seems like yeah. part and parcel of it. Yeah, very much. So, but you know, I mean, so given my background, when I hear things like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and God was the word, you know, I would just go cross eyed and it, and, it, and it made utterly no sense to me. So I take it you don't think that the logos is just the word. Per se, which is sort of a no, right not here. in the in the class in, in, in the in the you know in our common sense, but apparently the word, as I recall, the word logos, you know, it, like a lot of ancient words, it's like you can find it used in different ways, and and the verb form of it, I think, was one of its meanings was to speak, another was apparently to count. Uh, and there were no doubt others, but, but there is this, this, uh, so those are whatever connotations those have. And I think count is interesting because of the notion of, you know, computation, uh, in, in the noun form, uh, and, um, measuring, naming. Yeah. And, 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 And there's an association with the idea of reason. The idea is like the logos is a reasoning it's a it's a reasoning principle running through history it's like a logic shaping uh shaping the unfolding uh of of um of life and it is uh and it was imparted you know the the seed was planted kind of at uh at the beginning and you know and, and again i think i think algorithm is a really good uh modern word uh for illuminating the idea an algorithm can be a simple relatively compact set of principles that unfolds into immense richness and um and I think that's part of the idea behind the logos. I I, I think the the logos. Uh, Would you say that the logos itself is in a process of creative evolution too? Well, that's an interesting um, question. In that, in that you could say that you know, with life, the beginning of life is sort of running under under the principle of natural selection, but then that as that natural selection evolves into more complex organisms, particularly as as uh, yeah come together in, in humans, the, 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 the principle of that genetic or the, or sorry, the, the principle of the program evolves in a greater degree of complexity uh, than it began, than it started with. So it, it, in itself, the program is, is, is being updated with, with more and more complexity and, and sophistication. I, I think so. I mean, because one reason I think so is I think, the way Philo of Alexandria would have thought of the Logos, and he's not the only, again, he's not the only one who's thinking about it uh, in those days, but there's a fairly substantial record of his writings about it, uh, if, if fragmentary record of his own writings. Um, I think he would have thought of it as kind of encompassing just the laws, you know, the physical principle, you know, 
you drop things, they fall. You know, he didn't understand the modern principle of gravity, but he, he certainly thought of the world as being governed by physical laws. Those would have been part of the logos, encompassed by it, but they add up to a larger logic, in a sense, that maybe becomes clearer as things unfold over time. And so, yes, I, I would say just as we think of the scientific laws as being capable of, in a sense, generating new principles, like, uh, I mean, just, just life itself. We think of that as a originating. We don't have a super clear idea of the dynamics, but we think of it as originating from a prebiotic uh, phase, but in accordance with, you know, uh, the, the, the laws that govern, um, inorganic, you know, inanimate, the inanimate world. Uh, so, so life, you know, natural selection is new and yet compatible with and even generated by, uh, prebiotic laws. Um, and similarly, uh, natural selection goes on to generate a, a process that is also evolutionary, but in some ways different, by which I mean cultural evolution, the evolution of religious ideas, technologies, and so on, which has shaped the general direction of things, you know, since humans really began inventing stuff long, long ago, mm-hmm. um, and, and began speaking and exchanging ideas and, 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 and so on. So, yeah, the, the, New laws, in in a surely scientific sense, kind of come into being, uh, and, and so yeah, they're they're they're. I can I can I think it's fair to think of the logos as being a a seed that almost has other seeds within it, right? And those seeds manifest in other forms depending on the context that they get yeah. planted in. Do you see yourself as a? I had to to betray my own ignorance here. I had I had not come across Philo until um, about a week ago. Started doing some research on for this conversation. Um, do you see yourself as a as a neo philo philoist in a certain sense? Well, I mean, uh, I think uh, I think it's I, I personally am just you know I wasn't brought up in a secular environment like you. My parents were devout Southern Baptists, and I didn't remain a Southern Baptist, but it did leave me with an interest in. Um, I guess, theological issues. And, you know, I, I, I'm very interested in the reconciliation of science with, uh, first of all, anything that can be called spiritual. You and I, as you know, certainly have a common interest in Buddhism. And, and I think the there are parts of Buddhism, although parts of Buddhism as practiced in Asia are just very conventionally religious. Um there are, there are what you could call naturalistic parts of Buddhism, sometimes called secular parts, that I think qualify as spiritual in some meaningful sense of the term. And I'm interested in that reconciliation, talking about that part of Buddhism in a scientific context. But yeah, beyond that, I'm also, and this is, uh, and by the way, Philo had his mystical side. I mean, uh, we, we, we will get in the sense of, believing that a, a a kind of contemplative and and I think he would say ascetic life can um bring one into well he would say communion with the divine maybe but also uh we might say a more mindful state among other things anyway um well, well no actually I I did I read I did read your chapter and, okay. in in the evolution of god on the logos and you quote a passage where it, it sounded like he he felt he came to communion with the divine. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I try not to read too much into things, and with Philo, you you are dealing with a fragmentary text, some some of which isn't preserved, although he was very prolific. There's a lot of it. There are volumes. Um, but but, but what, what, what struck me as interesting about that was that he felt he felt like he fell from. It. You know, he had yeah. he had this great community, and, and then he, and yeah. then he lost it. And it, well, and it was, it's like going on a retreat and coming back, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. the parallel I heard was the similarity between the, the Buddha's own uh, seeking of enlightenment, where you know he he practiced contemplative disciplines, what we call meditation, with 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 renowned yoga masters of his mm-hmm. day, and and entered into these 
sort of divine bliss abodes, these divine bliss states. And, but they didn't last. He fell, came back out of them. And it was in coming out of them that he felt like the, he was disconnected from the, from an an experience of awakening or freedom. Uh, Right. and, And it was, it's almost like, I actually was seeing this development in the religious uh, structures where the, the more archaic tend to personify the the awakened experience as a divine entity. And it's almost like the Buddha sort of abstracted that even more to the principle of his own awake consciousness, which which does tie in in some ways to Peterson's view of the, the sort of the the triad or the, the the core elements within which the logos is operating and why it is is sort of this uh, uh what is peterson's triad um as i get as i get it he's he's basically describing in genesis that in the beginning there is this formless chaotic potential um and within that emerges god which he sort of defines as I can't tell if it's both consciousness and a deep interpretive structure through which we encounter the world, but it's in a way it's through the, the recognition of consciousness that order starts to be imposed upon this chaotic dimension. And, and it's, and it seems to be that it's not just the consciousness, but it's the naming and the ordering of the experience through language and through dialogue and through interaction with other that, that, that a, a kind of inhabitable order in his language and inhabitable order is, is eked out of this chaotic potential. And, um, you know, I think for him the, that the book of Genesis and, and probably all the biblical stories are descriptions of phenomenology. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Peterson is very interested in order and chaos. And I, and I think to some extent that interest grows out of, uh, profound personal experiences he had along the way, but but I do think it, it's fair to say that that the logos is an ordering principle. Uh, now I don't know; I'm not aware of uh, ancient texts talking about a relationship between consciousness as we think of it in the logos. But I'm not an authority. I am not an authority on the logos. I mean, I I uh, I. Uh, so it, it, that could be there and it could be something Peterson is bringing to it. I, I think, um, and it makes sense that consciousness, you know, a consciousness is a whole nother thing we could get in. Sometime if we talk about the Dharma of Bob for long enough, we will get into consciousness per se. But um, the, uh, well, there was something that in, in I, I think I caught something in your chapter where you speak about sort of a creative insight that comes that, that, that is born and then it, it that insight and this is this is what peterson i think is trying to get to is that that he doesn't use the word insight but it's almost like the creative insight needs to be in order for it to take form it must be instantiated in the body of of a human through through speech so it's it's the, the, i was reading it or, or listening to him as this chaotic potential in a way is the sort of the undifferentiated uh field of imagination and from that kind of disorganized, dis- disorganized imagination, uh, consciousness of, that knows it comes online and is able to, to extract from the field of potentials almost a, a prototype of an insight for what, how the world or how the good could be developed in one's experience. Okay. So you, I, may, I may be getting too abstract here, but but it, it, it seems to describe the phenomenology of, of inspiration and then the, the ap- application of that inspiration into form, which is through the body and speech and brought into the world in that way. Okay. Let me actually um, back up. And that, that reminds me of, of a footnote. I want to add something I said earlier. Um, I said you could have a strictly scientific worldview, even a scientifically materialist worldview, and still believe in a larger purpose. I want to emphasize that you could even be a a so-called eliminativist, that is to say, a philosopher who thinks that 
I think it's fair to say consciousness doesn't exist, which doesn't make any sense to me. But suppose you were that severe and 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 kind of austere in your materialism, um, and uh, and you didn't want to talk about consciousness entering the picture at all, or maybe at most as an epiphenomenon. That is to say, something that's generated by the material world but doesn't in turn influence the material world and that i think is that i can imagine that 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 doesn't seem as crazy as saying consciousness doesn't exist but i want to emphasize even even uh those views i think are totally compatible uh with a teleology the idea that there's a purpose unfolding and um and and i could make the argument for purpose within that framework that said i do think consciousness is a is something and it's not uh and it's challenging to explain and i gather peterson is attributing causal uh not just causal significance to it but it sounds like monumental causal significance to it so like he's saying consciousness enters the physical system and imposes shape and form on it or something yeah it's it, i mean it, it's by virtue of being conscious that one is able to exert any kind of order over the chaos, which, you know, and, I, mm. I, and as a meditator, you know, and, and mm. thinking of the Dharma, it's like, if, if you think of a meditation, any meditation you've had, there's two broad dynamics that go on in your meditative sitting, right? There's the periods of time where you're wandering. And when you're wandering, you, it's impossible to exert much control or influence over that, that, that dynamic. But as soon as you become awake, to the fact that you've wandered and you're back online being present to what's unfolding in real time events, then you have the where, the, like at least a foothold in, in a dimension where you can start to exert order over how you relate and see those things. Yeah. Well, there's also the fact that when you think about times in our life, when we are bringing order to something, it like takes a conscious attention like if you imagine like it's the night before you're going somewhere and you're packing a suitcase stuff is thrown everywhere you, you know your 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 room is a mess and you need to, to to like create a suitcase that has like three pairs of socks three folded shirts whatever it's going to be this orderly thing okay and you're doing that try listening to a podcast while you're doing it you can't you you will you, you have to think consciously unless you travel all the time. And this is interesting. No, I, I'm laughing because I failed at this last night. I was packing to go away for the weekend yeah. while listening, trying to listen, re-listen to the Jordan Peterson podcast. And it was, it was useless. Yeah. You, 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 I mean, you'll get glimpses like your consciousness will shift and you can pay attention to the podcast, but then you can't make the decisions you need to make to pack because that takes conscious attention. Now, if you do something long enough, like if you travel, 50 times a year for 20 years, you'll get to a point where it, it requires less and less conscious attention. Same with driving somewhere. The first day you drive to work, that takes all kinds of conscious attention. You can't listen to a podcast then either, but that becomes completely rote. So it's the bringing of order, the initial bringing of order that seems to involve conscious attention. If you look at all the things in our body that, are just really super routinized, my heart beating and so on. Um, they seem to, uh, they seem to not require conscious attention. Now I say seem to because it's not impossible that my heart has its own little consciousness and there's, there's a heart in there thinking, uh, I, I'm so insulted that Bob doesn't realize I'm a sentient being or something, but I, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think the deal is that, um, the initial bringing of order to things requires conscious attention, but routinized order may not require consciousness. But in any event, it is a demonstrable fact that consciousness is associated in our own experience with the bringing of order to things. And that's a very interesting fact. Yeah. Um, and, and in terms of the creative evolution that comes from that process, it, the thought I had was that through the, through the logos, through speech and, and instantiation and being, uh, 
the the creative insight in a way is somewhat of a prototype. It, it, you know, it's it, and it needs to be tested in the fire of dialogue and and reason and 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 sort of the the, the, the marketplace of ideas to see if it has if it has legs and um, it, it, it's sort of like that, that. That's how the program itself gets gets the novel elements of it um, debugged in a way. Does that make sense? Through communication among beings. Yeah, I mean that, that seems like a, a vital aspect, a vital dimension to this de- de- developmental evolution. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking this through for the uh, maybe the first time. I mean, um, well, yeah, I mean, feedback is is central to a lot of this. I mean, natural selection is a feedback system, right? It's like puts out. This particular kind of organism, organism tends to die young. That's negative feedback. That model didn't work. So you can imagine innovation and improvement, as happens in biological evolution, without communication in the sense that we normally use it. So it's it's not like human speech is essential to successful innovation. On the other hand, feedback is pretty integral to it. And speech is one way of giving feedback. You know, that's, you can view natural selection as a giant information processing system, you know, and, and uh, as a feedback system. And uh, in that, and that's a good example of, of a sense in which the cultural evolution that does tend to involve speech, again, doesn't have to. I mean, like if, if I observe somebody, doing something that works when they're picking uh, fruit or something, they don't have to tell me about it. I can just see that it works and start doing it. And somebody sees that, that I, it works for me and they start doing it. So imitation can lead to the proliferation of successful models and so on. Um, but it's true that, yeah, uh, speech is very important. And it's, it's very important in the sheer coordination of human society. So, again, it's related to order in that way. Leave innovation aside, just the day-to-day preservation of social order involves communication among beings. And the development of the moral good, too, which is situated within your, I think, your dharma. It's like, how, how do people appreciate the, the development of their own Placement in a non-zero-sum dynamic, so as to to lead towards, I think, more win-win outcomes. Is that is that reasonably accurate to say about your model? Um, well, certainly, the logos, you know, to do the work that Philo wants it to do and that I'd like it to do, which is to um, help us appreciate that there's kind of more going on here than is immediately obvious, you know, in other words, the whole thing is maybe adding up to something, maybe something good, maybe even something that merits the term divine. Uh, I think I would say if that's the case, then yeah, it would be really great if you could show that there's moral progress, if, if not always present in the system, at least ultimately present in the system. And, um, you know, I have a way of talking about that, uh, that it does involve uh, non-zero-sum games and so on. I think in this particular conversation, it would be a mistake to try to get into that. I do want to read something Philo said that this is like the last thing uh, in the final last page of my book, Non-Zero. And then I, I got into it in more depth in The Evolution of God. But, you know... Non-zero sumness. So as you suggested, uh, you know, a non-zero sum game is one where there isn't just a winner and a loser. It's not like singles tennis where every point's good for one person, bad for the other. It's more like doubles where the two teammates can either both win or both lose on each point. And then there's all these intermediate forms where it's not like win, win, lose, lose, but it could be technically one person wins a lot and the other doesn't lose anything or loses just a little. But the point is that, that the sums don't uh, come to zero. 
uh, add up to zero. Um, in any event, the um, one big form of non-zero sumness is complementarity. Like if, you know, uh, the way division of labor works in the economy or say, you know, you're a farmer, I'm a craftsman. I, sw- I you know, I'm very good at making, I don't know, plows or something. You're very good at using them to make, to eat, harvest fruit and vegetables. We swap mm-hmm. and we both come out better than we would if, if we were on our own, because it's hard to do everything, right? Specialization carries economy. So that's one form of complementarity that is non-zero-sum. Well, Philo didn't have the language of game theory available, but here's a quote from him. And here he's talking about, he's not just talking about different people. He's talking about different people, different peoples, different species. He's talking about the whole organic world that have different strengths and weaknesses, different uh, things to bring to the table, so to speak. And he writes, and this is in, this would be in his view, uh, a description of the logos, but he, 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 he's writing about God. But again, and we can get into this down the road. God is uh, in this view, in some sense is the logos. Both the logos is in a way, the mind of God, you could say, or whatever, but anyway, he says that God, quote, this is Philo writing, God, quote, has made none of these particular things complete in itself, so that it should have no need at all of other things. So, you know, this is, in other words, this is why we, one reason we need each other is because we're, we, we have different things to bring to the table. He writes, Thus, through the desire to obtain what it needs, it must perforce approach that which can supply its needs And this approach must be mutual and reciprocal. Thus, through reciprocity and combination, even as a lyre, L-Y-R-E, the instrument, even as a lyre is formed of unlike notes, God meant that they should come to fellowship and concord and form a single harmony, and that a universal give and take should govern them and lead up to the consummation of the whole world. And and it, it was part of his view that humankind is evolving Toward a, a single global uh, community, I even I think he even goes so far as to say it would be a democracy. But um, that's not exactly what he's describing in that package. But in that passage, but it, it, that would be a manifestation of what he's describing in that passage. One manifestation would be uh, the way humans are drawn into uh, interdependence, into into a giant web of interdependence, and that's certainly related to my own worldview. Um, and I mean, it's, it's kind of the worldview I'd spelled out in the book, Non-Zero. And then at the very end, I came across this quote from him. I had never heard of him. And uh, it was actually from a book on free trade. Uh, it was near the end of this book on free trade. They quote Philo. Um, and it seemed very apt. So I quoted him, but I didn't really uh, get into the logos until um, or, or look into his work more deeply. Um, until the evolution of God, but so here's one of my questions from as an alien from out of space: uh, Was Philo's conception of the logos uh, very influential, on, or how influential was? I, I get it. I get gather that it was, but I'm, I'm trying to get, uh, ascertain the, the degree of influence that Philo's conception of the logos had on, say, John's gospel. Well, that I don't know for sure, because he wasn't the only one using the term. Uh, And again, I'm not an expert. I think uh, he could have had a very direct influence. He he was because he was writing around. uh, He was living and writing, I believe uh, I should check this, but right around the time of Jesus. And the Gospel of John was written uh, some decades after Jesus died, I think, by conventional reckoning. So, and he was a very influential uh, person. Uh, You know, and of course, he was uh, Jewish, and we think of John as a Christian text, but of course, Jesus fundamentally thought of himself as Jewish. He had a kind of Judaism that apparently wasn't welcome in all corners, but, uh, uh, and and it it probably had political implications that weren't welcome. But, um, uh, but 
you know, the people uh, writing the book of John, you know, uh, whoever wrote the book of John, presumably um, would have thought of themselves as, as writing in a, in, a, in, a, in a Jewish context. And the idea of uh, Jesus as being the Messiah and the Savior would have been a particular, uh, I think, still at that point. I mean, it's hard to say, a partic- but, a, but a particular uh, take on on Judaism. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, don't hold me to that. It's it's very complicated. You know, the question of well, at what point can we uh, start talking about a um, a Christianity that's distinct from Judaism? And Paul, the great organizer of the Christian Church, had already been active, I think, by the time uh, John was written. But uh, <laughs> this is a long long winded way of saying I don't know the answer. To your question, Philo wasn't the only one using the term, yeah. but I've got to think, uh, you know, he's a very influential guy, a very prominent guy, and I've got to think his ideas were influential. Yeah, and as you're talking, the, the question that occurs to me is, you know, you've been describing how one can see this directional development, this teleological movement, independent of any kind of theological uh agreement or or worldview you can you can have a strictly materialistic view and and, and perceive the evidence for that, mm-hmm. that telos um but i guess the question that i i would like to hear you mention speak to is how do you see the logos operative within the theological uh experience of the divine or or, or development of the divine like what what is what is theologically uh, how, what, what's the mechanism of the logos within the, within the theology, the Christian theology? Well, I'm not, a, I'm not a Christian theologian and, and there are lots of Christian theologians who probably don't make much use of the concept at all. But I think um, in Philo's uh, worldview, it is on the one hand, a manifestation of God. It is almost like, the unfolding of history is is bringing you in touch with, in a certain sense, the mind of God. And then there are ways, and it is it is suggestive of ways we should behave to bring ourselves in closer alignment with the divine. And and those ways are good for us. There's a big, uh, you know, w- the, the idea of wisdom. Even even wisdom as a goddess uh, is is very prominent in naturally in the wisdom literature and including the part of the Bible as part of the wisdom literature, like uh, um, the book of Proverbs. But um, it's also it's prominent in Philo's worldview that if we respond wisely and live our lives wisely in accordance with just the way things are in the world. We reflect on the way things are and say, well, then I guess the wise thing would be to behave like this and to whatever, to delay gratification, to not. Uh, do, you, do you know, the, do you know the, the Zen story about the student who comes to the Zen master and says, what's the most important thing? Uh, you know, no. What's the answer? Wisdom. Oh. But then the well, student that, says. That was, that was uh, surprisingly unzen like in its well, uh, clarity. No, 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 it's, it's not over. It's not over. It's not over. So then the, <laughs> the, the, stu- the student doesn't get it. And the, and the, Zen, and the student asks, well, how do you get wisdom? And, mm-hmm. the, and the, uh, the Zen master says, good judgment. Which the student still I would think leads to the question, how do you how get do you, good judgment? And the Zen master just gruffly says, bad judgment. Well, yeah, it's feedback. Right, the feedback. Uh, and it seems like, and this is what I was trying to get at, is like, it seems like the logos is a, is a key element of the feedback loop of, of testing one's mm-hmm. hypothesis about what will make things better. Yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, in the, in the wisdom literature, you find, you know, just statements about, look, like envy tends to do this to you. Jealousy tends to do that. Stealing another man's wife tends to do that. You know, they have bad outcomes. History shows. That's the assertion, at least. I mean, of course, your mileage may vary, but the assertion is that uh, wisdom consists in recognizing that certain kinds of things 
in a probabilistic sense, you know, are bad. They're, they're probably going to work out badly for you. The guy whose wife you steal, there's a real chance he's going to come kill you. And, and, and I mean, that's, this is the kind of stuff you see in the wisdom literature and in, 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 uh, in the Hebrew Bible and in Philo's, um, worldview, I think, you know, coming into alignment with the logos involves among other things, wisdom. And to get back to the mystical part, that wisdom, um, could, should lead you to recognize that the life of reason, the life that isn't slavishly in compliance with animal impulses is a better life, Philo would say. And to the extent that the reasoning part of your mind is holding sway, then you are partaking of the logos because the, lo- the logos is a, is a reasoning principle. And you're like getting the picture. You're like getting what the logos is trying to tell you is as it unfolds. So you are coming into alignment with the divine, even you, and even I, you know, he would say, I think in those moments when, uh, he himself was so, uh, had been so, uh, contemplative. And I think he would say ascetic and devoted to reason and kind of dismisses dismissive of animal impulses in those moments he was having a kind of communion with the divine i i, I the the other thing i'd say I, I don't know that he says this but in my view the other thing about recognizing the logic of the logos is okay it can be good for you via wisdom it can be good for others because it will make you a more moral person and it can sustain the direction of the system and, 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 and I would say help push the world, draw the world across the threshold to a global community. That, that would be. Sorry, I'm getting hammered by, by leaf cleanup. It seems like. I, I think that's a sign from the logos that maybe we've, uh, we, we've, we've gone on about an hour. Um, I, I would just, uh, I would just close, um, I mean, I'm actually hearing things at my end too. More evidence is assigned from the logos, but I would, I would just close by saying, if you're not interested in theology, um, but you're interested in this weird simulation stuff, and you're like, well, suppose we were living in a simulation. What would be the point? Like, what, what does? Suppose it's even just a video game. Well, what, what is, what climax are we being driven toward by the the algorithm? Um, if you want to think about this in those terms, I think it's uh, it is still the logos is is uh, the the kinds of things that uh, well the kinds of arguments I would make uh, using the term logos or the kinds of scenarios I would lay out uh, have relevance to that question. It, it's 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 in a certain sense the same question as the theological question. Um, so that's it. Uh, it's not it. I mean, there's a lot more to say. Yeah. I feel like we just scratched the surface in a way and, and, of, and of the, we, of the logos, let alone. Right, right again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The look, um, I, I would like to explore with you further about how, see, I, the thing that I think that Peterson, um, speaks to nicely is that, uh, it's as though the the book of Genesis is describing phenomenologically the implicit structures of experience, and and I feel like, all right, my sense of listening to him now and, and then thinking about it in terms of the Dharma is that one of the things that that Dharma practice, particularly the practice of meditation, does is it makes those implicit structures more explicit, and which seems to to factor into the ability of one who become co- becomes conscious of those implicit structures to in a in a sense amplify or accelerate their participation with the evolution of the good by implicit becoming explicit you mean the person becomes more aware of them yeah you mean you become aware of the right. sort of the unconscious you become aware of what co- the nature of consciousness and you have you become more aware of the content within your experience and how you're interacting with it. 
Well, and I think Philo would say that kind of awareness can be part of uh, bringing yourself in closer alignment with the logos. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I should, before we talk again, I should, maybe you should tell me, uh, which Jordan Peterson lectures to listen to. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll, um, and I'll do that. I'll, as long as you don't name too, too many. Uh, it'll be one or two. One or two. One or two. I can do that. I, and I apologize for the, um, the, 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 the the yard cleanup on my end. I, it didn't, it didn't really uh, come over at my end. So that's fine. And your sound is good. I may buy one of those little backstops myself. I mean, it which, has, which as it, you know, it is dual purpose, but, uh, multi-purpose, multi-purpose. I hope to only, to only use it for one purpose. Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised. I mean, you know, because when we speak, I guess about half of the sound waves probably go below the level that is the top of that thing. And so they would go into that and be absorbed rather than bouncing around. Um, yeah, that's so good. In theory, in theory, in theory. Well, thank you for um, being so indulgent and, uh, and letting me um, No, this, I mean, for me, this is very, very engaging and thought provoking. Uh, it, 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 I feel like, is the word inchoate, like, the, you know, something's incipient in one's mind. Like, I feel like there's a, I'm coming to a new understanding of, of my relationship to the Buddha Dharma through, through like this discussion and, and through oh, that's interesting. thinking about these things. That's interesting. We should talk more about that. But yeah, inchoate is uh, presumably that one thing the, lo- the Logos does is make things less inchoate uh, as it actually operates in the world. You would, that's a property you would attribute to it. So maybe our conversation will be somewhat of a development, a developmental part, process. Part of the one, one small, one small, one small drop in the, in the logos. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, thank you. So let's, uh, do this again. And, uh, I think we'll, have, we'll do it more than once. Uh, at least until, until you, we adequately feel that you are able to articulate and, Preserved for posterity, the, the the messianic vision that is within your head. <laughs> uh, okay. Hum- humility aside, uh, I, I I actually uh, yeah embarrassment aside. I mean um, I I do have a little bit of a, a a messianic streak I have to say, but I'm telling you, if you had been brought up like uh, in my in a series of Southern Baptist churches and, and uh, uh, you'd be like this too. It's intense. It wasn't that intense. I don't want to, I don't want to exaggerate it, but, but the book of revelations was like my favorite book mm. as a kid. Naturally, it's like a, it's the closest thing the Bible has to a video game. It's wild. I'll have to read, read that. Yeah, read totally. That. Just read it as a, it's wild. All right. Psychedelic. Okay, well, thanks, Josh. Thanks, Bob. And we'll see you next time. Good to see you.